turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 9. And let's read these words. Let's put our fingers on these words. Let's ask God to put his finger on our heart through these words. These are the most important words you can hear. And let's enjoy the reading, the public reading of Scripture. That's what the church is to do. We are the pillar in support of truth. And this is truth. So join with me silently as I read here out loud Hebrews chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. We'll be reading through the entire chapter. Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section, in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was the second section, called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the ark of the covenant, covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. Verse 6. These preparations, having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties. But into the second, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened, as long as the first section is still standing which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, now catch this, verse 9b, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. Now, verse 11, but when... Christ appeared. I want you to circle the word appeared. See if you can find the word appeared here. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, key verse here, how much more, verse 14, how much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Therefore, you should always ask yourself, what is that therefore, therefore? Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant for where a will is involved the death of the one who made it must be established for a will takes effect only at death since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive therefore not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood 
For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the saint, both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Thus, verse 23, it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself. Now to appear, circle that word, in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time. Not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Lord, I pray for your anointing. I pray for your grace. And I thank you, Lord, that you are going to speak to your people this morning from Hebrews chapter 9 and draw them to yourself. Father, I pray this and I thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, last week, two weeks ago, we preached from Hebrews chapter 8. And if you recall in Hebrews chapter 8, here was the main point. Jesus is a better high priest who offers us a better covenant. As a matter of fact, look in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 8 verse 13. He speaks of this new covenant. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. So now as we, we click into Hebrews chapter 9... He's going to pick up this theme of Jesus' covenant, which is better, and it it makes obsolete the first covenant. Look at the first verse there in Hebrews chapter 9. Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. Now, here's the difference. Whereas Hebrews 8 talked about Jesus giving us a better covenant, Hebrews 9 is going to talk about Jesus being a better sacrifice. So get that in your head. The book of Hebrews is about Jesus Christ. He's greater than all. He's better than all. We've studied from the beginning. He's better than Moses. He's better than the angels. And he's he's better uh, than than any messenger. And then in chapter 4, we hit the main emphasis of Hebrews. He's a better high priest than the high priest of the first covenant, the Jewish law. Remember the context here. What do we have? We have a group of Christians... I don't know if you recall Jose's illustration from two weeks ago, that are huddled in their living room. They're Hebrews. They have one promise, that Jesus Christ, the high priest, will give them access to God solely on Jesus' good works and on Jesus' sacrifice that cleanses them from their sins and will help them obey. 
They're huddled in their living room. Nothing physically for them to look at. Trusting in a a sacrifice that they remember, because it happened fairly recently on the cross, but they can't see. And in the shadow, they're in the shadow of the temple. This massive building, which daily, day and night, you've got smoke coming up, you've got the smell of calves and goats being offered to God, and you've got a different system that says the way you relate to God is through this sacrifice. And so, and so the, the author of Hebrews is saying to the Hebrew Christians, don't go back, guys. Jesus is better. He's a better high priest. He gives you a better covenant. And today, he offered a better sacrifice. So get this in your head, sacrifice. If you read this book, what one word jumps out at you? Blood. There's a lot of blood in this chapter. This is a bloody chapter. Because sacrifice is what's at issue here, okay? So Jesus is a better sacrifice. You got that? All right. So let's take a look at why a sacrifice. Why, what, what's the big deal about a sacrifice? Well, here's the reason. The people of God were called by God to relate to him according to a covenant, It's a very important word we're going to look at here in this chapter. As a matter of fact, this this word covenant, it's in the New Testament 33 times. It's in Hebrews 7 through 9, 15 times. Got the picture? Covenant is very important. So a covenant is God saying, I'm going to relate to you based upon my word. The first covenant was based upon his law word that God gave to Moses on Mount Sinai. And it's referenced in this chapter. And God knew that the people could not keep that law word perfectly. They would break it. So he then instituted sacrifices through a high priest, what we call the Aaronic high priest, because the first high priest was Aaron, Moses' brother. So when that was instituted in around 1500 B.C., all the way down to the time of the writing of this book, maybe 60, 65 A.D., 1500 years, there have been high priests, and they have to offer sacrifices, and there's got to be blood Because we can't relate to a holy God apart from sacrifice because we're unholy. So that's why sacrifice is such a big deal. Whose sacrifice is better? That high priest who's right now in that beautiful building that we live in the shadow of, or Jesus who died naked on a cross, who also rose from the dead, and who told us, no longer will you meet with God in that temple, you will meet with God in me. I'm the new temple. Destroy the temple, I'll raise it up in three days. He wasn't talking about the, the physical temple that was in Jerusalem. He was talking about his own body. So the, the, the place of meeting with God moves from a temple with elaborate systems, we're going to read about them in a second, to a man, a humble man, who died on a cross and says, I My sacrifice is superior to that one. If you lived back then, you would go, I don't think so. (laughs) Especially if you grew up as a Jew. You're looking at that temple and the activity and the grandeur and the gold and the the, the animals, and you're thinking, that's got to be better. There's more going on. We're in this living room with Jesus. Where is he? All right. So you got that. So sacrifice is important. So the author is saying, listen, the sacrifice of Christ is better. Why is it better? Why is it better? All right, now look at your Bibles. You tell me in this chapter, did you catch it? Why is Jesus' sacrifice better? 
Why is the sacrifice of Jesus, the high priest of the new covenant, the second better covenant, better than the, high, than the sacrifice of the high priest of the first covenant? Well, look at verse 9. Look at verse 9. This is speaking now of the old covenant, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered. Right at the writing of this, there were gifts and sacrifices being offered in the temple. But notice, that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. Do you see that? Now look at verse 14. Look at verse 14. What does it say? How much more will the blood of Christ sacrifice? Think sacrifice when you see blood. Who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish. That's definitely talking about sacrifices. To God, purify our consciences from dead works to serve the living God. Here's the main point. The the first covenant could cleanse you ceremonially so that you could come before God and not die. But you didn't do it often, and it never touched your heart. The second, the second covenant, the better covenant in Christ, through a better high priest and a better sacrifice, reaches down into your heart and cleanses your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Now, before we compare this morning, what we're going to do is we're going to kind of march through this text in the outline that the author has given us. Verses 1 to 10 is the Old Covenant. We're going to look at it briefly. Verses 11 to 14 is the New Covenant. We're going to compare the two, looking at the sacrifice of Christ. And then verses 15 to 28 is how Jesus' sacrifice gives us this better covenant. Now, we're not going to talk about the covenant because, see, the unique... You need to learn this when you read your Bibles. Listen, covenant is in here. But don't make the mistake of making this about covenant. Chapter 8 was about covenant. Enjoy covenant in chapter 8. Enjoy what Jose Prado preached, which is the truth, that we have this better covenant with better promises. Oh, please live in the better promises. Remember what the promises were? Promised obedience, 8.10. Promised intimacy, 8.11. Write these down. And promised mercy, 8.12. But we're not going to talk about that this morning. Because the unique contribution of this chapter, and we'll miss it if we don't get into it, is sacrifice. The sacrifice that mediated or gave us the covenant. So you got it? We're thinking sacrifice this morning, not covenant. But we're going to have to talk about covenant. Okay? So, as we think about sacrifice, the reason Jesus' sacrifice is better is it does... Jesus' sacrifice provides what the old or first covenant promised. That's a good thing to think about. Jesus' sacrifice provides what the first covenant promised. See, all that elaborate sacrificing, it pointed to something, but it could never give it. That's what verse 9 says. It couldn't perfect the conscience of the worshiper. Jesus provides what the old covenant promises. So let's talk about for a moment. We're going to get into the text here, but I want to talk to you about conscience for a moment. Can I? Okay, thank you. Conscience. What is conscience? All right, let me give you just a brief definition of conscience. This is from uh, P.T. O'Brien's commentary on Hebrews, which is a good commentary to get. Fairly new commentary in a series edited by Don Carson. Listen to the definition of conscience. Just try to catch this, okay? Because what's at play here is our conscience. And it's being cleansed. It couldn't be cleansed by the old first covenant, but it can by Jesus' sacrifice. So we've got to understand conscience here. 
And I hope when I share this, it's also going to hook your heart so that you can be drawn into this message because God is speaking to you right now through his word. All right, what's the definition of conscious? The term conscious, conscience, was used of the inward faculty of distinguishing right and wrong, hence moral consciousness. So what's a conscience? It's the thing we all have to distinguish right from wrong. And we do have one, even though some of yours may be seared after years of sinning. (laughs) But thank God he saves us, doesn't he? So that conscience is the thing that tells you this is wrong. Let's just be honest, shall we? When we come to someone about, hey, can I talk to you about God? What's their first instinct? Run. Why? Because their conscience bothers them. No matter how much they want to say it doesn't, you bring God into the picture and immediately, you know, that's like the parent coming home from a long weekend, a day early, okay? And the teens are all partying. And they look out the window. Freeze that moment. That's how most people feel about God. We walk around with a low-grade, or some of you, a high-grade fever of guilt, don't you? Right? Don't preach at me. Don't judge me. God would never send me to hell. Okay, those are all words of people whose consciences have been pricked, and they're like, I'm in trouble. Okay, so that's what we're talking about here, conscience. You got that? Do you have one? I hope you do. Okay. I believe you do if you're in here. Okay, so a conscience is that distinguishing right from wrong. Now, let's go biblically. In Hebrews, the conscience has a divine orientation. Oh, please. Now, that's a statement you want to, when you want to write down. See, our conscience has to have a divine orientation. My conscience can, can bother me because maybe as an employee of my company, and they tell me I can't have facial hair, and then I grow a mustache on my, on my vacation, and I come to work with, with a mustache. Now, walking in, my conscience is going to bother me, okay? That's one thing. But the conscience here in Hebrews is in relation to God. See, most people do not define sin in relationship to God. They define sin in relationship to their fellow man. And hence, the prob- that's the problem. God would never send me to hell. I've never murdered anybody. Well, you're defining your conscience and, and right and wrong and sin uh, horizontally. The Bible defines sin in our conscience vertically. That's important. So Hebrews, the conscience, has a divine orientation. Now catch this. And describes the whole person in relationship to God. What's my conscience? It's that within me that describes me in relationship to God. Buddy, your conscience should bother you. (laughs) Now, if I define myself in relationship to one of you, depending on who it is, I might come out pretty good. Some of you will come out better than others. Okay? But if I define myself in relationship to God, what's going to happen to my conscience? Guilt, trouble, big trouble, unless I lie to myself and suppress my conscience, which people do, and that's why God's wrath is poured out. But do you see that? Okay. Some of you are looking at me very seriously. So it is, it is the point, listen, conscience is the point at which a man or a woman confronts God's holiness. Confronts God's holiness. See, a guilty or an uneasy conscience can be cleansed or purified only by Christ's sacrifice of atonement. This chapter 
is all about Christ's new covenant sacrifice, being superior to the Jewish high priest's old covenant sacrifice, precisely because only Christ's sacrifice can cleanse our guilty conscience from dead works to serve the living God. That's what verse 14 says. It is Christ's sacrifice that cleanses our conscience from these dead works. The only effective means to approach God is the blood of Christ. It's not the blood of goats and calves we're going to look at in a moment. It's the blood of Christ. It's not your good works or my good works. It's the blood of Christ. What are these dead works? By the way, I'm, just, I'm, I'm kind of focusing on verse 14 right now. But look at verse 14 when it says that it's the blood of Christ that purifies our conscience from dead works. What we're doing, before we get into the comparison between the two, we're understanding why this is so important. What does this have to do with me today, Al? It has to do with you because you have a conscience. And, and apart from Christ, your conscience is guilty. And it separates you from God. And there's only one way for your conscience to be cleansed, not only to know, but then to believe in, and then to apply every day this this beautiful truth, what we call the gospel. So that you might serve the living God joyfully, not out of dread, but out of delight, not out of drudgery or dead duty, but out of delight. Not to gain God's approval, but because you have it. That's a huge difference, boy. That's a huge difference for all of us, isn't it? It was for the Hebrews. So if you look at verse 14, when it says here, the blood of Christ purifies our conscience from dead works. What are those dead works in verse 14? Those dead works are practices and attitudes that defile a person's conscience and erect a barrier between them and God and incur divine judgment. So it's only the blood of Christ that purifies my conscience from dead works, practices attitudes that defile my conscience, that erect a barrier between me and God and incur divine judgment so that I might serve the living God. See, the blood of Christ gains me full access to God. No more avoiding him. No more, no more trying to go down a different aisle in Publix when I see him in there. Right? I mean, by the way, who, in here, who came in here this morning with a guilty conscience? Don't raise your hand. Don't raise your hand. Virtually all of us, right? I mean, all of us didn't have quite the quiet time we wanted this week. All of us probably didn't treat our spouse exactly like we wanted to this week. All of us probably got mad at that person at work that we said, I'm not going to get mad at them this week. All of us, especially those of us that are trying to diet, probably ate too much this week. All right, those are mild guilty consciences. But don't we have a guilty conscience toward God? I mean, let me illustrate this. I, <clears throat> early on... Uh, in, in the church's life, there was a, a situation that occurred, and uh, there was a couple, there was a family in the church uh, that were, they were offended. They were offended with me. Uh, and you know what? They had every right to be offended with me. <laughs> uh, by the way, if you're here and you're a guest or you're a member, I, I will disappoint you, okay? Just want to let you know that. <laughs> uh, I won't do it purposely, but I will. So I disappointed. I, I offended them, okay? And they left. They left the church. And I remember I went to a Publix in the area where they were living. And I remember thinking to myself, what if I see him? Right? Have you ever done that? You're in Publix, and you see that person that you've disappointed. You know that person that you promised to do something for and you didn't do it? Or that person that you said the, the crossword to? Or that person that you maybe you cut them off in the parking lot? You go, oh, look, there they are. So you're in Publix, and you see them, and you go, I hope they didn't see me. And you, take down, you go down another aisle. Here's the insanity. We do that to God. And you know why we do that to God? Because the, our father did it to God. Adam, right? Genesis 3, 
He sins. He, his conscience is guilty. And what's he do? He hears God coming, and like the clever man that he is, right, guys? We, we all know this works, right, to blame someone else. First of all, to hide. He hides. How can you hide from God? Okay. And then he blames his wife. Right, men? Time-honored tradition, isn't it? Okay. It is. Okay, so what's my point here? What's my point? We all have guilty conscience. And apart from the blood of Christ and faith in his sacrifice, we will be separated from God. At best, we will serve him out of dead drudgery and dread, trying to gain his approval. You know, maybe if I do what that person wanted me to do, maybe if I change the way that couple wanted me to change, maybe if I do the things the way they say, they'll like me again, and I can gain their approval, and we apply this to God. And the Bible says, the only thing that can deal with the guilty conscience that separ- because of dead works, the sin that separates us from God, is the blood of Christ. So we've got to look at this greater sacrifice. So let's do that now. Let's drop in to how this chapter is broken up. Verses 1 to 10 is the Old Covenant sacrifice. We're going to look at that for a moment. We need to, as New Testament Christians, as Christians that are born in the 20th century, live in the 21st century, we don't understand a lot of this stuff. Then we're going to compare it in verses 11 to 14 to Christ's sacrifice. And then we're going to look at how Christ's sacrifice actually gives us this new covenant in 15 to 28. So let's look now at 1 to 10. Let's look at it there. What do we have? We have... A picture of the temple, and it's impressive. Look at verse 2. There's lampstands. There's a table. There's the bread of God's presence. Look at verse 6. There's the holy place. Then behind the second curtain is the holy of holies in verse 3. Excuse me, not 6. Then in verse 4, we've got a golden altar, and we've got incense, and we've got the Ark of the Covenant with the seraphim. We have Aaron's staff that budded. We have the Ten Commandments in here. We We have the cherubim. We have all these wonderful things. And look what else we have. We have, verse 6, priests that are going in regularly. But notice that the... the, Here's what we're going to compare, apples to apples. We're going to compare the high priest day of atonement sacrifice, because that's the top of the line. Okay, That's the LE version of this thing, okay? With Jesus' sacrifice. So notice he drops into that in verse 7. But into the second, which is the Holy of Holies, the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood. Now, what blood does he take in? He takes in the blood of goats and calves. We're going to see that later on. So let's get the picture. Earthly temple, regular sacrifices, but we're going to go for this once a year annual sacrifice on the Day of Atonement with blood of, of goats and calves. And we're hoping that this is going to cleanse us so we can approach God. But verse 9 tells us it does in no way perfect our conscience as a worshiper of God. Now, let's compare it with Christ's sacrifice. Look at verse 11. See the word but in verse 11? It's a very important word. As you're studying your Bibles, and I want to teach you how to read your Bibles, whenever you see that word, think, okay, we're going to have a contrast here. This is an important point here. We've just seen the old first covenant system of sacrifice. Now we're going to see the new covenant. And that word but tells me there's a contrast here. Here's the contrast. But Christ appeared. Circle that word. You're going to see this word four times here. 
Notice where he appears and when he appears in history, even uh, geographically. But Christ appeared as a high priest. Immediately, author of Hebrews saying, okay, you got your high priest over here. In this corner, on the Day of Atonement, you've got Aaron's high priest. And in this corner, you've got Christ, a new high priest, new tribe, tribe of Judah, tribe of Levi, with a new sacrifice. And watch this. Where does he sacrifice? Look at verse 11. Of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with... Gr- uh, then through the greater and more perfect tent not made with hands, that is not of this creation. Jesus Christ's sacrifice is greater, number one, because it's in a a better or a greater place. It's in heaven. It's not in that temple, guys. You're huddled in your living rooms thinking that temple is all that. That's a brand new building. It's gorgeous. To you, you think it's going to be there forever. And God's presence is in there. Little do you know, 60 AD Hebrew Christians, in 10 years it's gone. But the temple that Jesus is in, the one who you're holding on to and don't let go of him, he's in the heavens. Though you can't see it, it's greater than that one. Later on in the chapter, we're going to see it's the real deal. This is the copy. You're going to go back to the copy when you have the real deal? Do you see the logic there? May you see it in your heart too. That's the important part. Okay, so it's greater because of where the sacrifice takes place. Look at verse 12. He entered once for all. Remember that the priest had to go in regularly? I don't know about daily, but certainly regularly, and certainly once a year. And it's been 1,500 years since the law appointed these high priests, so at least 1,500 times and counting, maybe 1,560 times, this high priest has gone in to offer a sacrifice. Well, Christ's sacrifice is greater because he did it once. If I'm chopping down a tree and I hit it once, as only a Morla can probably do and knock it down, isn't that greater than if I have my little axe and i got to hit it 1,500 times? Which is more impressive. One shot, wham! There goes sin. There goes Satan. There goes the curse. There goes my guilt. Christ on the cross dealt a decisive blow because the sacrifice on the cross is greater than the sacrifice of that priest in that impressive building right there. Though it was a shameful time and he was naked and died a horrible death, that sacrifice once and for all. That makes it greater. Oh, Christian, listen, you can subtly think your good works can gain you favor with God. And you're just as bad as these Hebrew Christians. You may not have a big temple, but you've got some elaborate way you're going to please God. And through your behavior. And then somehow you'll forfeit that if your behavior isn't what you think it is. And you don't do that. Don't go back to the old. That's the way people live who don't believe in Christ. Live as if he is your great high priest. His sacrifice is greater even than yours. But that's not all. There's one more thing. Verse 12. He entered once for all into the holy places... Not by means of the blood of goats and calves. That's how I can tell you that the high priest went in with goats and calves back in verses 1 to 10. But by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Oh, friends. Oh, friends. The blood of the eternal Son of God is greater than the blood of goats and calves. Thus, his sacrifice is greater than the sacrifice of the high priest in that impressive building. And it's greater than whatever sacrifice you can come up with. Friends, there's nothing greater than the blood of the eternal Son of God. And he went in with that blood. That's the blood he went in with. That sacrifice for you. 
today. No matter what you do, that's the sacrifice that's there for you. And what does he secure for us? He secures eternal redemption, which I believe is synonymous with what is being said in verse 14. He secures for us a clean conscience, a conscience that is cleansed from dead works, the very works that um, divide us from God, the very works that curse us to damnation. He secures eternal redemption from the slavery of these dead works so that we might serve the living God. I mean, if, if, you were to, if you were to give a one-sentence summary of this chapter, at least if I were, it would be Christ's sacrifice brings us into God's service. I, I challenge you this morning, write your own one-sentence summary. Base it upon the text. But Christ's sacrifice, hence this chapter is about Christ's sacrifice, Brings us into God's service. That word to serve can also be translated worship. So chapter 9, verse 14, the the main verse here is talking about being set free, being redeemed, so that we might serve or worship God. And only the blood of Jesus can do that. Now, as we move to the second half of this sermon, how does it do that, Al? Okay, you've painted for me this picture of the old first covenant. You've painted me for me the picture of this new covenant and the blood of Christ. I kind of follow that. But why all the blood? how, How does Jesus secure for me a clean conscience so that I might from dead works, I might serve God, the living God? By the way, notice the the contrast there as well. He, he, He cleanses our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Isn't that good? There there again, we see the contrast. So how does that happen? All right, let's dive into verses 15 to 28. Look at verse 15. Therefore, that therefore is referring to what we just read. So what it's saying is, here is Christ's sacrifice, and here's why. This is what he did. Now, it, it, it accomplishes this. Therefore, he is the mediator. That's just a fancy word for he gives us something. He's the one that says, take, he receives it from the Father and he gives it to us. Mediator. Okay? He's the mediator of a new covenant. Diatheke is that word covenant. I want you to follow the word covenant. Underline where you see covenant or will here. And I want you to know it's the same Greek word. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new diatheke covenant. So that those who are called... We must be called by God. He chooses us. We don't choose him. But choose us, he does, and we respond by faith. May receive the promised eternal inheritance. Listen, the promised eternal inheritance, I think, is synonymous with eternal redemption. It's synonymous with a clean conscience from dead works to serve the living God. It's it's the promise of God. Now, what's interesting is with that term, the author of Hebrews introduces a very Jewish thing, an inheritance. Remember, the Jews were to inherit land. Now, as a Christian, we think about that. We think the Old Testament is foreshadowing or pointing to something in the New. So today, our inheritance isn't land. It's heaven. Or I would even say it's God himself. It's this... It's this it's this. Remember in chapter 2, we talked about that God originally had for mankind 
He, he, he wanted to crown us with glory and honor in the garden. He wanted us under his authority to rule everything under our feet. And we forfeited that when we said, no, God, not your way, but my way. We lost it. This is talking about an eternal inheritance that Christ wins back for us. It is heaven, but it's not some ethereal place with angels strumming harps. It is a new creation. It is a new heavens, a new earth. We will be crowned with the glory and the honor. Jesus even prayed for that. Give them the glory with which I have. But it's God's glory that he gives us because we humble ourselves under his authority. And Jesus is our great high priest. His sacrifice enables us to gain the internal inheritance. That's all it's saying here. You see that? All right. Since a death has occurred, now we get into how Jesus' sacrifice does this. This word death introduces the idea of sacrifice. Since a death has occurred that redeems them, that's us, from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. So Christ's death redeems us from these dead works, transgressions, a fancy word for sin, that we committed under the first covenant. Verse 16. For there, for where a will, that English word there is diatheke. And amongst theologians, there's a great debate. How do you translate that word? Well, here they chose to translate it will. Some people would say maybe that should be translated covenant. We'll talk about that in a moment. For, there, for where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. Verse 17. For a will, diatheke, takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who makes it is alive. Verse 18. Therefore, not even the first covenant, so diatheke, same Greek word, the, the translators choose to translate it covenant here. For not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment... Now, look at verse 19. I want you to circle 19. I want you to write next to that in your Bible, Exodus 24, verses 3 to 8. If your Bible has footnotes, it's already there. But Exodus 24, 3 through 8. We're going to go there in a moment. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying... This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. Every time you see blood there, think sacrifice. With blood and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So how does Jesus' sacrifice gain for us the eternal inheritance, the eternal redemption, the clean conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Well, it, he does it by dying as the penalty for our covenant breaking. Now, this is technical, but let me just show you something in the Old Testament, and then we're going to come back, and, and I pray you get this. This is the kind of chapter and verse that you can study for weeks, get your kids involved, get a good commentary. But let's just skip back to... Genesis chapter 24. Excuse me, Exodus chapter 24. Exodus 24. What I love about the book of Hebrews is it teaches Christians to understand the Old Testament. So I would be, I would be not a faithful expositor of the word if I did not bring you back to Exodus 24. Stay with me. Lean forward. This is good stuff. Okay, Exodus 24 in my ESV Bible at the beginning of that chapter, Exodus 24, it says the covenant confirmed. Now this is what, this is what the, the, the author of Hebrews chose to quote from Exodus 24, verses 3 through 8. Now let's, let me read it to you, Exodus 24, 3. 
Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. Ah, all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. <laughs> Have you ever done that? Usually on January 1st, right? New Year's resolution. Those words are like powder by January 2nd. For some of you, in the evening on January 1st. I'll never eat any more chocolate cake. I've had a chocolate cake. Okay. All right. All the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain. What mountain? Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai, okay, in the desert. All right. And 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes of Israel. And he sent young men to the people of Israel. Remember, there's probably about 2 million of them. Who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings um, of oxen to the Lord. So you see sacrifice here. Sacrifice is going on. And Moses took half of the blood. Now, look what Moses does with the blood. It's a bloody scene, guys. And put it in basins. And half of the blood he threw against the altar. This is blood that he's throwing. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said... <laughs> Here, once again, like we do, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. Oof, be careful what you say. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people. Why would he throw blood on the people? Why? Because God knew they wouldn't obey it. You see, somebody had to die. In this case, it was animals to mediate the covenant Otherwise, the covenant breakers would be destroyed by the very provisions of the covenant. That's old first covenant. And it, it cleansed them ceremonially, outwardly, so they could come to God every year in the Day of Atonement and survive as a nation. But it never touched their conscience. It never touched their heart. Now go back to Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9. Jesus' blood is the only blood that can cleanse our conscience from the dead works, that can give us eternal life, that can give us eternal redemption, that can give us eternal inheritance. So as this chapter ends, he goes back to Jesus' sacrifice. Catch that. Verses 23 to 28, he's going to review once again Jesus' sacrifice. So in verses 1 to 4, excuse me, 11 to 14, he talks about Jesus' sacrifice in contrast with the sacrifice of the first high priest, verses 1 to 10. Verses 15 to 22, he's telling you why that sacrifice, how that sacrifice gained us the covenant. Now in 23 to 28, so that we don't forget, and please hear this, when the Bible repeats something, that means it's very important for us. He goes back and takes another look at Jesus' perfect sacrifice. Will you this morning? And that's where we're going to conclude the message. Verses 23 to 28, thus... Thus, it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites. What rites? The blood of goats and bulls. But, but, look at the contrast there. But, the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ, and what's the better sacrifice? Verse 24, for Christ has entered not into the holy places. He's reviewing verse 11 now. Not into the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things. He's not going into that temple, guys. 
No, but into heaven itself. Now look at the word, now to appear. Second time we see the word appear. What do we see here? We see that Jesus, the better high priest, better covenant, better sacrifices, he first appeared, past tense, verse 11, to die on the cross. He now appears, now appears, the word now there. He now appears in the heavenlies at the right hand of the Father to intercede for us. He saved us. He's saving us. And at the end of this chapter, we're going to see he will save us because he's going to appear one more time in the future. But he, he appears now at the right hand of the Father based on his once and for all sacrifice for you and me. That's what it says here. But into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Oh, friends, oh, friends, if nothing else in this chapter, please understand this. Jesus appears on God's behalf, on your behalf, before the presence of God with his blood. Oh, friends, don't trust your own good works. Don't look to anything else. Jesus is sufficient. His sacrifice is superior. Verse 25, nor was it to offer himself repeatedly. He's again saying, look, my sacrifice is superior because it's not an annual sacrifice. It's a once and for all sacrifice. As the high priest enters the holy places every year with the blood, not his own. But then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world, which is ludicrous. By the way, he suffered from the foundation of the world. Oh, don't miss that one. Yeah, I know, your brain's on fire. I see the smoke coming out of your ears, but that's all right. It's good. It's good smoke, right? It's holy smoke. Holy smokes. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all. His sacrifice is better. At the end of the ages, to put away sin by the sacrifice for himself. That's it. He puts away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Old first covenant could not put away sin. It could just make me ceremonially clean so God wouldn't wipe me out in the whole nation as I waited for the better sacrifice, Jesus. That's what he's saying to the Hebrew Christians. That's what he's saying to us. Verse 27. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear. Now there's that future sense of appear. Will appear a second time. Not to deal with sin. When Jesus comes back a second time, it's not going to be to deal with sin. He did that the first time. But to save those who eagerly wait for him. So if we're eagerly waiting for him, Hebrews, eagerly wait for him. Don't give up your hope. Remember that? That's a theme. He's going to save you. Well, wait a second. I thought salvation was like once and for all. It is. There's a threefold salvation. He, we have been saved. Justification. Verse 11. He appeared... High priest on the cross once and for all. We are being saved. He appears now in God's presence to intercede for us. He's praying for us to grow in godliness. He's praying for us to be sanctified by his word. Read John 17, the high priestly prayer. He's praying that our faith would not fail. And he will appear glorification. We will be saved when he comes back a second time. Oh, friend, he will judge you. And if you have anything other than his blood... As your trust, his sacrifice, you will be judged to eternal damnation away from the benevolent presence of God. But, oh, friend, if you trust him, if you believe in him, he will bring you glory, his glory. No more sin, no more pain, no more death. It's interesting that when Jesus on earth inaugurated the Last Supper, and I'm going to end with this passage, Luke 22, He echoed Moses' words. Remember Moses' words in Exodus 24? Behold the blood of the covenant of the Lord. He used that in Exodus 24, 8. 
Listen to what Jesus said in Luke twenty two twenty, and I trust me, he knew exactly what he was saying. He knew exactly that he was referencing and fulfilling what, what Moses foreshadowed and pointed to. Luke twenty two twenty says the following. And likewise, the cup after they, they had eaten, saying, this cup, Jesus holds up the cup, the cup of the covenant, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Fulfilling what Moses, what the law was pointing to. Let's pray. Lord, I pray this morning that you would, you would help my friends to sort through. There's a lot of information, but you'd help them to sort through this truth. Lord Jesus, that you, you came that we might have our conscience cleansed from dead works, that we might, through your sacrifice, come into your service, your worship, Father. That there would be, Lord, in the hearts of everybody in this room, there'd be a movement from a, from a dread of you, a guilt of you, trying to avoid you, even a service of you that is based in drudgery and simply dead duty to a service that would come from delight. Oh God, that you would deliver Christians from thinking that their service to you will gain your approval to the truth that your approval they already have and it would release that service. Oh God, just with your heads bowed, I just want to ask you a question. Are you serving the Lord? Is it a delight to you? Is it a delight to you to give financially? Is it a delight for you to serve here in the church? We have many needs in this church. Is it a delight for you to think of sacrificing for the sake of the gospel? If it's not, friend, I'm not here to beat you over the head with that. I'm here to ask you, do you understand the sacrifice of Jesus Christ? Do you understand its profundity, its depth, its audacity? Do you understand what he's won for you by his blood? God's approval, a clean conscience from the dead works that separated you from God so that you might serve, worship God with a joyful heart. Lord, I pray that for our church this morning. Pray it for my own life. You know the times I can, I can, I can uh, slip into drudgery even in these wonderful things that you've asked me to do and I, I love doing them, Lord. Forgive me when I do them out of a heart that is less than joyful. Oh, Lord, we as Christians should be the most joyful people. Where there's a lack of joy in my friends' hearts, may they see that it's a gospel deficiency, whether it's an understanding of it or an application of it. Oh, Lord, give us that application. Lord, you're praying for us right now. May we be sanctified by your word, this word. May we grow as a church that understands and applies the gospel and serves the living God with much joy. Oh, thank you, Father. Thank you. Um, here's what I just want to have you do. Just stay seated. We're going to sing. The, the, the band here is going to sing a song. If you know it, please feel free to sing it with them. The words will be on the screen. But I, I believe God wants to just uh, deepen this work. So you may just want to meditate on the scripture right now. Listen. If you want to sing along, that's fine. But um, it's a song called Nothing Without You, and I believe it expresses our heart's prayer to God. We are nothing without Christ. So you can stay seated as the band leads in this song.